Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Thank you for standing. Please be seated. Let us pray together again. Our Father, we thank you again for the richness of your word. Make it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path this evening. Shine forth, shine forth our God so that we would see you in your beauty. Help us now this evening. Help us as a body. Help this little band in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> One of the things... <clears throat> One of the things that the Bible teaches us about the book of Psalms, that the book is very human. It shows the highs and lows of life, the mountaintops, as well as the valleys. It voices concern when it seems as though God is at a distance. And it shouts to the rooftop when God is close by. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever been there when it seems as though God is far away? That he's not hearing your cry. Children, you may think that way. You may think, you know, I've been calling upon God. I've been asking God over and over again. It could be for salvation, but it seems like he's far away. I think sometimes God doesn't move as fast from our perspective. <laughs> it seems sometimes from our perspective that God is moving at a very slow speed. But believe it or not, God is traveling at normal speed. He's traveling on his timetable. His clock and our watches are not in sync. <laughs> Yet it seems as though he's at a distance sometime. And, I, and sometimes I think God tries us in such a sense. Not that he doesn't know what we're going to do because he knows it. And not because he doesn't know what we want because he knows that as well. And so that we could see ourselves. So that we could see if what we're crying for, we actually really want. It's like the children of Israel in the wilderness. And God say, I'm testing you. He, know, he knew exactly what they were going to do, but they need to see exactly what they were going to do. So it's that trying time. And we experience both in the psalm, the high mountain and the low valley, the distance as well as nearness. It is a human book. Or, as one man has said, I've told you this before, he said out of the 66 books, 65 of them speak to us, but the psalms speak for us. And this psalm right here speaks for us. The psalmist has been building a very convincing case of his shepherd. And it is convincing. The Lord God, the great Jehovah, is his actual shepherd. It is a fact. He's not guessing. He's not wondering. He said, the Lord, that's my shepherd. It's almost like the psalmist is saying, now I don't know who your shepherd is. <laughs> But I can tell you who mine is. It's the Lord, the great Jehovah. For the psalmist, as I said, it's a relational fact. This is not fiction. He knows this to be a reality. He is bonded, bonded to his shepherd. The Lord is his continual shepherd. Not a shepherd every now and then. 
No, this is not a part-time relationship. This is not temporary care. This is a consistent and constant care. The Lord is his shepherd continually. Furthermore, we saw that the Lord is his personal shepherd. It's wrapped up in the word as we've seen before. My, the Lord is my shepherd. He owns God to be his shepherd. Because God owns him to be his sheep. All other so-called shepherds are not even acknowledged. The psalmist doesn't waste any time talking about any other. If we look through the psalms, it's just the psalmist and his shepherd. And when we get in the valley, he observes the enemy, but his focus is on the shepherd, not on the enemy. He claimed Jehovah as his alone shepherd. By using that personal pronoun, my, the psalmist is holding firm to the first commandment. Stick with me. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He's holding on to that. And because the Lord, who is self-existent, self-sustained, and self-sufficient, was his shepherd, he lacked absolutely nothing. All that he needed was found in his shepherd. <laughs> Let me just pause here for a moment. Let me say it one more time. All that he needed was found in his shepherd. How about us? The psalmist has taken us from the light of the mountaintop to the dark valley. He has experienced the great care of the shepherd. On the mountaintop, he's provided everything I needed. In both cases, the mountaintop as well as the dark valley, in both cases, we see a caring, existing, leading, loving, providing, and protecting shepherd. In both cases, mountaintop as well as valley. The psalmist has uttered that he does not lack anything. Stick with me. He uttered that he does not lack anything. That statement implies that without the shepherd, he lacks everything. Are you listening? Without the shepherd, I have nothing. Absolutely nothing. No matter what I possess in this world, without the great shepherd, I have nothing. Nothing. But with the shepherd, I have everything. God himself had said, I will feed them in a good pasture. And upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. That's good news. That's beautiful. It reminds us of that great shepherd, right? Jesus Christ, because of speaking of him. He's the one shepherd, the one over the one fold. Brother Victor was talking about it just a few weeks ago. The one shepherd over the one fold who must bring in other sheep. So the psalmist has taken us not only to the mountaintop of green pastures, he said the shepherd lead, leads him beside the still, quiet, calm water. The shepherd knows exactly what the sheep needs. <laughs> Sometimes we don't know what we need, but the shepherd does. And sometimes, sometimes, if we're honest, the things that the shepherd has for us that we need, we think we don't need. We're pretty messed up, aren't we? That's why we need a shepherd. He said, he restores, he refreshes my souls. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his reputation, for his namesake. He's not doing it simply for my sake. I benefit from it, but he's doing it for his namesake. Why? Because the shepherd's name is tied to the sheep. Ah. He tells us about this dark valley, the shadow of death. 
and that he fears no evil. He fears no danger. And the simple reason why, because he has a shepherd with him. The shepherd comforts him. He supports him. He gives him rod and staff to guide him in the way, rod and staff to bring him back. He even prepares a table extraordinarily, prepares a table right in the sight of the enemy, and they can do absolutely nothing. I don't know what's on the table. I said that last time, and it doesn't tell us, but it just may be the shepherd himself. (laughs) That's enough for the sheep to have. What do you have from the table? I just give you myself. I gave you an illustration last time about my uncle, my big uncle, 6'5", 300 pounds. I think he's about 280 now, still a big man. (laughs) That my uncle would help me in that weightlifting process. I would push up and he would pull up. I would push up and he would pull up. And all of the burden I thought was resting on me. But when my uncle had his hands on the bar, it sure made it easier. That strength, I didn't think, I said, whoa, I could go by pretty easy. But it wasn't that. It's that my uncle was pulling. (laughs) And that all the burden rests on my uncle and not on me. Now, I told you that my uncle stood over me. But what I didn't tell you is my uncle also stood behind me. Why am I saying that? Because of verse 6. He says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. My dear uncle stood behind me. And I think from my experience with that big man, he had three things in view, at least three things. He was there to preserve me. He was there to protect me. And he was there to push me. Let me kind of say that one. He was there to preserve me, right? He was there to protect me so I wouldn't crush or hurt myself. And he was there to push me. He said, you can do it one more. And as I said, my uncle, one more never meant one more. I said, I thought you said one more. He said, give me one more. (laughs) He was there to push me. But he said, I'm with you. I got you. You'll be okay. That's the same thing the shepherd does for the sheep. He's pushing us and he's pulling us. I got you. You'll be okay. I'm with you. It's good to know, listen, it's good to know that in life, someone has your back. I think when we come to this psalm, we tend to think only of heaven. There's nothing wrong with thinking about heaven now. (laughs) Get me wrong. But we, we think only of heaven. We think of someone dying, right, and passing through the valley of the shadow of death. That can be applied. All the demons of hell assaulting the mind and bringing forth a bunch of discouragement. And lastly, he passes through and he lands on the other side. Glory. I like that. I like that. You know, we always, I say always, I can't say that. We sometimes talk about, man, I'm ready to go to heaven. You ever met somebody like that? You probably said it. I probably said it too. I'm ready to go to heaven. I'm ready to go to heaven right now. Yet we're still going to the doctor. (laughs) I'm just trying to understand, that's all. (laughs) We're still still going to the doctor. We're still taking medication. You're not trying to get to heaven as fast as you can. Come on, we got to tell the truth. I'm just saying, that's all. Where was I? (laughs) Oh, just like my uncle stood behind me. The psalmist sees something interesting. He said, I have a follower, goodness and mercy. So that's our message this evening. The shepherd as the pursuer. The shepherd as the pursuer. That's our one head. The shepherd pursuing us. The psalmist has declared a striking analysis of his entire situation. A striking one. So we come to the conclusion, and maybe one, I hope it's a conclusion tonight. As we come to the conclusion of this psalm, he sets before us his unhesitant confidence in the sufficiency, the excellency, and the capability of his shepherd.
That's what he says before us. He said, I want you to see him. I want you to see him. He's my shepherd, but I'm sharing that with you. Let me tell you how I view my shepherd. I want you to see him. He is not afraid. Why? Because he knows his shepherd is capable of taking care of every situation. I said before, I'll say it again. It's only two things that God has never seen, and there may be more. Two things, and I'm not messing around with your theology or anything like that, but at least two things that God has never seen. I know you think, well, God is omniscient. He knows everything. He's omniperspective. He sees everything. But there's at least two things that God himself has never seen. God has never seen a sinner he cannot save in a situation he cannot fix. Never. Never. Psalmist. Is not afraid. He is not terrified. Listen, by circumstances. He is not. This psalmist set before us here. We can find other portions of Psalm when we have distress, seem like we have depression, but not in this psalm. He's not. He's not even complaining. Not one complaint. He is not terrified. He has a sturdy, immovable rock that he's leaning on. I'm talking about about his shepherd, y'all. He's leaning on that rock. Please notice then in verse 6. Not only did he tell us in verse 5 about the table and his enemies right there before him and his being anointed with the oil, showing his welcome or being welcomed by the shepherd and being special to the shepherd and his cup running over, and I think was in the cup, if I could put it that way, is God himself. Then he comes to, surely. What a bold statement. I mean, listen to this for a moment. Surely goodness. What boldness. May I just go and just say it like this? Don't take this the wrong way. He names it and he claims it. Surely. It's a certainty. There's no doubt here. Surely goodness and mercy. He's certain. There's not one drop of doubt. He's confident in the shepherd. Oh, it's wrapped up in that little word. Surely that little adverb signifies, as I said, certainty. This is not a time to waver for the psalmist. No. He said, I am, if I could stand in flat footed, I am set. Surely I'm certain. I'm absolute. I'm resolved. The psalmist is banking on one thing. How could he make such a statement? I think because he's banking on one thing, the testimony of his shepherd himself. That's what he's banking on. (laughs) Or we could say, I'm banking on God's covenant faithfulness. That's what I'm banking on. He knows what it is to be in the valley. The valley may be dark. Listen, the valley may be dark, but it may not be as bad as we think. (laughs) Did you read it in the psalm? (laughs) He said, I'm in the valley. I'm not afraid. I fear no danger. I'm walking through the valley. I'm not hiding in the valley. I'm walking through it, but I got company with me. I have company with me. It's the shepherd. The valley is not bad, as bad as we may think. But let's be honest. In any given situation, we tend to think the worst. Am I talking to honest people tonight? <laughs> In any given situation, we tend to think the worst. We look at, actually, we, we try to place an outcome before we actually have an outcome. We, we, we have the results already set up in our mind. It's, 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 that, it's that tendency to be omniscient, and we don't have it. You get what I'm saying? We tend sometimes, we don't make decisions sometimes because we want to know the results before we make the decision. You can't know that. I think if we did know the results before we made a decision, we never pray. Let that sink in for a little bit. If we knew the results in any given situation before we made the decision, we'd never pray. You know why? Why? I already know how it's going to end. I already know it. 
Why talk to God about it when I know everything about it? No, the Lord has set it up. I'm not going to tell you everything. What you have to do is trust me and leave the results to me. You got to make the decision or whatever, but you leave the results to me. I'm not going to tell you everything. Genesis chapter 22 is a good example of that. Abraham, I know I told you in chapter 21, I give you Isaac and I threw your son. The seed's going to come. That's going to be a blessing to the world. You get to 22 and then God say, oh, Isaac, I want you to take him, your only son. God puts emphasis on him. I want you to take your son, your only son. God could have stopped right there, but he didn't. Whom you love. You had a pressure. Whom you love and offer him for a burnt offering for me. God doesn't explain anything, at least not in the text. He just said, offer him up for me or to me. We don't find Abraham asking Isaac anything. Matter of fact, we don't find him talking to Sarah about anything. Sarah probably said, you've lost your mind. You're not taking my son off and up for a burnt How many of your mom would say, go ahead. <laughs> How many of you would have said your husband came to you and said, listen, God said I need to offer, you know, our boy up for. No. How many of you would say, oh, good, go right ahead. You've lost your mind. Wait till God tells me. <laughs> then, we, then we'll talk about it. He didn't explain anything to Isaac. What kind of trip that was for Abraham? God said, offer him up. We know Isaac didn't know anything about it because Isaac, the father, the wood, the fire. But where's the lamb? He didn't talk to Isaac. God gives no explanation at all. He just said, do it. I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> I said, Lord, listen, let's talk about this for a little bit. I, I mean, right now, I don't. I, he didn't do that. I say that to say God didn't give the end result to him. He had to trust him in the beginning. Trust at least to some degree. If God has me to kill him, then God has to bring him back to life some kind of way. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he has to do it. Faithfulness. But the words goodness and mercy shall follow me. The words are joined together in beauty, goodness, and mercy. We may even call them twins that are joined at the hip. So I put that in there because Brother Harold used to say, Brother, we are brothers. We're joined at the hip. <laughs> oh, boy. Can't help but think about it. The word goodness carries the sense of benefit and well-being. Listen carefully. It can mean morally good. That is upright. It is when someone is so content with a person or situation that he refers to it or him as his resting place. I want to repeat that to you. It is when someone is so content with a person or situation that he refers to it, the situation, or him, the person, as his resting place. In other words, he is completely satisfied no matter what. Satisfied. That's goodness. But the word also, I think, can simply carry the sense and refer to God himself. Let me tell you why I'm saying that. Goodness is an attribute of God, and you can't have the goodness of God without having God. But it can refer to God himself, so we could say both in the same. And why would I say something like this? It is because of what God said to Moses of himself. Listen to the language. He said, I will make all my Goodness, my goodness, pass before thee. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Moses has said, Exodus chapter 33, if you're not going up with us, we don't want to go up. Show me your glory. That's a big request. Show me your glory. I just want to see your glory. If you're with us and you delight in us, show me your glory. That's how we should be. When we gather, we should say, God, we're gathered here so you can show us your glory. What does he say? 
The Lord responded by saying, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. What passed before Moses, chapter 34? What, what passed? Was it stuff that floated, that floated by? And Moses said, oh, that's it right there. What passed by Moses? Well, when we get to chapter 34, God preached a sermon about himself. That's what he did. He preached. God preached God in chapter 34. He said, it said, and the Lord passed by before him. Here it is. And proclaim. God, the preacher. And proclaim. What did he say? He proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. He didn't talk about Moses. He said, the Lord, the Lord God. Can you imagine for a moment God passing by? And he said, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. What a sermon. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. Did you hear the sermon? What a declaration. And what happened? What was Moses' response? Worship. That should be our response. He fell down and worshiped when he heard that sermon. That was his amen. Preach God. <sighs> he got into the frame of worship, and we should get into the same thing. I say that, God said, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. And God himself was the only thing to pass by. The goodness could be God himself. Listen how David used it. David describes the Lord in a personal way. Listen what he says. Blessed be the Lord, my strength, which teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. My goodness. He wasn't talking about himself. Listen to the language. Listen to the language. My goodness and my fortress. He called God his goodness. My goodness and my fortress. My high tower and my deliverer. My shield. And he in whom I trust, who subdueth my people under me. God is his goodness. So I think when the psalmist says right here, surely goodness, <laughs> surely goodness and mercy. I don't want to get ahead of myself at least too much. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. He speaks indeed of God himself. That's why I'm calling it the shepherd, my pursuer. I'm not talking about a pursuer as overtaking, but a pursuer as following right behind. My uncle stood behind me the whole time. I think the psalmist is shipwrecked by grace and stranded on his shepherd. That's what he is right now. Also, the word mercy carried the sense of being obligated to a particular community. Obligation. Hence, desiring and doing whatever it takes to see communal protection. It's the protection of the community. What is the psalm saying? And what is the psalmist saying? I think he's saying this. No matter where I am, on the mountaintop or in the valley, one thing I am assured of, I am provided for, protected, and loved by my shepherd. That's what I'm assured of. I, I have a certainty. I'm, assured, I'm provided for, protected, and loved by my shepherd. Please don't miss that. Don't miss, don't miss what the psalmist has said before us. He is making this assertion, listen, based on what he has experienced with his shepherd. He's basing it on that. David has been in battles, remember, not just with the big man whose big mouth got him in big trouble with a big God. I'm talking about Goliath. That's not the only one he's been in trouble, been in contact or trouble with. David said, Saul, a lion came out, took one of the sheep, and I grabbed him, but I can't even imagine that. That's a big cat. He said, not I pull out my shotgun, I grabbed him by the beard. Must be was a male lion. That's a big cat. 
I grabbed them by the beard, Saul, and worked them over. Not only that, when that big grizzly came out, I grabbed, <laughs> I grabbed him and worked him over. Oh, I have experience with the shepherd. Yes, great experience. I know his goodness and his mercy. I think he sees the shepherd. He has known by experience that his shepherd, listen, is faithful, that his shepherd is trustworthy, that his shepherd is dependable, that his shepherd is consistent, that his shepherd is reliable. He knows that by experience. How about you and me? He's content because he has a friend in his shepherd that sticks closer than a brother. He's content. Valley or no valley, the psalmist is content with the shepherd. He is content. Listen, he is content because he has a shepherd that never lost a sheep. (laughs) Sound like the language of John chapter 10, doesn't it? Jesus said, I know my sheep. They know me. They shall what? Never perish. I'm not going to lose one. David is confident because his shepherd has never lost a sheep. He is content because his shepherd is his refuge and strength. When he has none, the shepherd has it all. That's the language of Paul. When I am weak, Paul says, I'm strong. He is content because his shepherd is his help and his shield. He is content because his shepherd is his shelter and strong tower. He is content with his shepherd. He's content. Why so? The shepherd has overcome him with his overcoming love. And he's content with the shepherd. The psalmist is settled on the fact that his shepherd will love him all of his days, no matter what. Do we think the same way? The shepherd will love him all of his days, no matter what. Maybe I should just put it this way. My brothers and my sisters, please understand that there is not less love from the shepherd in the valley and more love from him on the mountaintop. Did you hear what I just said? You need to understand, there's not less love from the shepherd in the valley and more love on the mountaintop. The mountaintop does not maximize the shepherd's love and the valley does not minimize the shepherd's love. Let me just say it a different way. In other words, the shepherd does not love more because you're on the mountaintop. And he doesn't love less because you're in the valley. He doesn't. Don't you? No, I. Take our circumstances to measure God's love for us. Don't do that. Don't look at the world and say, I'm seeing all of these things going on and all the things that are coming into my life and that's how I'm going to gauge God's love. Don't do that. No, no. I would be so bold. I would be so bold to say this evening that God cannot love you any more than he loves you right now. I'm going to be so bold to say that. He cannot love you any more than he loves you right now. And he cannot love you any less than he loves you right now. Nothing more, nothing less. God's love is as high as it could be. (laughs) And that's all it could be. That's a pretty bold statement. Yes, and I'm sticking by it. If God could love you more, if God could love you more, or if he could love you less, God's love will be based on your performance. Did you, are you listening? 
I'm trying to be as simple as possible. Children, I want you to follow me. If God can love you more or love you less, his love would be based on your performance. And now you are in a difficult situation. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. When would you know that you have performed the best? And when would you know he loves you the most? When would you know that? You can't. If this were the case, you and I, listen, would be schizophrenic. We'd be pretty messed up. <laughs> he loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. We would be schizophrenic if not suicidal. If it was based on our performance. God's love is not stunted. It's not hampered. It's not on pause. No. Do you really believe that? He didn't pause his love. He doesn't hamper his love. It's not stunted. Maybe we think God's love is based on our performance. Furthermore, if God could love more, or if he could love less, he would be just like us, changeable. You still with me? If he could love more, or if he could love less, he would be like us, changeable. We are creatures undergoing change all the time. If he could flip-flop, <laughs> we would have an unstable shepherd. It would be impossible for us, listen, it would be impossible for us to determine what his affections are toward us at any given moment. It would be impossible for us to determine that. That would be a miserable life to live. Not only that, listen, not only that, but we would be performing just so he could love us. Just so he could love us, we would be doing things like this. I'll just read my Bible more so, so God could love me more. I'll just pray more so God could love me more. I just be kind to people more so God can love me more. I, you know what I do? I even attend services more so God can love me more. I will even sing louder so he can love me more. None of those things work. No. We will be performing for God's love. Let me just remind you of a couple of passages that rips that idea to shreds. Remember that classic scripture, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I hope you don't miss the passage. We quote it so many, so many times, we, we, we can actually miss it. Don't miss the clear language of the passage that God put his love on display before you perform anything. It's on display in the passage. He gave up his child. Listen, he gave up his child so that he can take in more children. I'm talking about Jesus. I even like the extent of the passage here. I like the extent of the gospel here because God was kind enough to put my name in the text. I hope you see it. It's right there in John 16. He put my name in the text. If you don't read it carefully, you're going to miss my name. I was called whosoever. That's my name. I used to be a you-soever, but he made me a whosoever. I'm glad he kept it general like that because I can plug my name in. And I hope you could do the same. I hope you're not a you-so-ever. If you're a you-so-ever, we want you to be a whosoever. That's what we want. He put my name in the text. Just shut down any idea that God is loving us because of our performance. I'm not saying what we do is not important. That's not what I'm driving at. But what you do doesn't make God love you more or love you less. 
The other passage we have, as I said, I want you to be a whosoever, and you become a whosoever by believing on Jesus Christ. The other passage we have is Romans chapter 5. Listen what it says. Paul writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. He said, for when we were yet without strength, we were helpless. In due time, just at the right moment, Christ died. Listen what he called us, the ungodly. What a word. In due time, we we were, we were without strength. We were helpless and we were hopeless. We could do nothing. It wasn't our performance. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely, scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in, the, in, in that while we were yet Sinners, Christ died for us. Do you hear the performance in there? No, no. God's love, not based on our performance. I hope you hear that language that describes us. If God's love, listen, were based on our performance, if God's love were based on our performance, we would not be loved at all and we would not be saved if it was based on our performance. Not love and not saved. <sighs> Hallelujah, I'm glad it's not based on our performance. No, both passages teach us. They teach us that his love stems from himself and is displayed in his performance. It's in his performance the love is displayed. It's the performance of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That love issues out of God himself and it's on display in his performance. Our performance, our performance should show that they are done because we love him, not so that we may be loved by him. Are you still with me? It's out of love for him, not so that we would be loved by him. We, do, we don't want to be Pharisees, because that would be sad, you see. We don't want to be any of those things. We don't. Yes, our performance, our performance is show that we are doing these things because we love him. I talked to my wife. I know... Husbands here talk to their wives. I talk to my wife, not in order to cause her to love me. I don't hold my wife's hand, not so that she would love me more. I don't hug her in order for her to love me. I hug her because I love her. And so in that mindset, you know, in marriage counsel today, you say, you know, well, you got to come to a relationship and you got to give 50% and she has to be give 50%. No, that's crazy thinking. That's bad counseling. You give 100% even if she gives none. That's what you do. God gave a 100%. And we had given none. Ah, no, we love him. Because he loved us. Notice again the text, not only that certainty, surely goodness and mercy. You can say these God's attributes, but we could also say this God himself. I think the psalmist has a very clear view. He's been building a good case. He says, shall follow me. The idea is to follow behind closely to pursue. He has a different perspective from Job. I tell you what, not Job, Job. <laughs> he has a different perspective from Job. Job said, you know, I, I went forward, didn't see him there. Backwards, he's not there. I looked on my left hand, not there either. On my right hand, I didn't see him there. The psalmist said, Job, I have a different perspective. When I look before me, he leads me. When I looked on the left hand, he's with me. When I look on the right, he prepares a table before me. And when I check my rearview mirror, he's following me. In other words, I have God all around and I'm in the middle. I love, I love the picture. The shepherd is with me. He has me on every hand. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord 
is round about his people, says the psalmist. David says, that's what I am right now. The shepherd has me on every side, and that's why the enemies can do absolutely nothing. It's God, the great shepherd. Not only that, not only does he follow me, he followed me closely. He's following me closely. Listen to what else he says. He said that I may dwell. He, actually, let me back up. He's following me. Notice what he says. All the days of my life. What? The psalmist says, the shepherd that I have has me all of my days. He has my back. And not only so, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Notice he goes from what we said the first time he was talking about his shepherd, first three or four verses, and then he goes into the valley. He speaks to his shepherd, and now he gets to verse 6, and he's back again talking about his shepherd. He said, I should dwell in the house forever. Now, some scholars take these words to mean the heavenly temple where the saints will behold the face of their Lord forever. I like that. Looking into the face of the king forever. The old folks used to sing a song. I still sing it from time to time in our home. Won't it be grand? Won't it be grand? Oh, won't it be grand? Oh, won't it be grand? I'm going home to live with Jesus. Won't it be grand? And it will be grand. I love this perspective. Dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. That's the grand thought in the ultimate goal. To know that the shepherd is leading his sheep to the final destination. Glory itself is a glorious thing. And I love it. But I have to ask the question. Is that what the psalmist is talking about? I have to ask that question. Is that what's burning in his mind? Is it, I just want to be with my shepherd in heaven. Is that what he's talking about? Just giving you something to think about. He just may be talking about something right here on earth. He may be. Stick with me. He may be. I'm not saying that the other can't apply. Surely, I said, I've come through the valley of the shadow of death. Glory itself. Could he be? Could he be saying that the valley, listen, the house of the Lord, remember, could be his heavenly temple. But could he be saying that I was on the mountaintop and I've gone through the valley, but just because I'm in the valley won't keep me out of church? <laughs> I mean, I, let me see if I can say this one more time. I'm trying to be simple. The psalmist has gone through the valley. There are enemies in the valley. The valley is darkness, but the shepherd is with him. Not only do I go and worship the Lord when I'm on the mountaintop, but I also will worship him when I'm in the valley. I'm going to church. I'm going to church. You know, sometimes it may not have happened to you. Sometimes people can get so down. Guess what they do? Yeah, I'm not going to church. <laughs> I'm not going to worship. That's not the psalmist. He said, I know about the valley. My shepherd is with me, and guess what? He's following me. I'm going to the house of the Lord. I'm going to worship. Regardless if I have to go in the valley or regardless if I'm in the valley or on the mountaintop, don't let the valley stop me from worshiping my shepherd. I think that's what he may be driving at. I'm not going to stop worshiping because things are not going my way. I'm not going to stop worshiping because it's not following in my favor. No, no, no. Even on the mountaintop or in the valley, I know the nearness and closeness of my shepherd. I'm going to the house of the Lord. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Tell you another thing. No old folks, man. They said another thing they would do on Sunday morning. They walked down the middle aisle, and they would sing a song. I'm not going to sing for you. I'll just tell you what they say. My daughter said, no, don't do it, Daddy. <laughs> they would walk down the, the, the middle aisle, and they would sing a song, and it was real, sim real simple. Glad, glad, glad to be in the service one more time. 
That's the psalmist. They will say, I'm so glad, so glad to be in the service one more time. The psalmist, I think, is saying, all I want to do through all of this darkness, I just want to get to the house of the Lord. That's what I want to do. I want to be with the people of God and meet with the God of the people. Listen what he said. He said in himself, listen to Psalm 27. One thing I've desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Listen, all the days of my life. All the days of my life. Why you want to do that? Can you please tell us why? To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. He's talking about right here on earth. We could apply to heaven, but he's not letting the valley get him down. I may be wounded in the valley, but I'm going to worship the Lord. Nothing else what he said. Listen, listen, listen. There's another beautiful one. Listen. Blessed is the man, Psalm 65. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. I want to go to the temple. I may be struggling this week. I may be in the valley these months, but I want to go to the temple. I want to know something of the presence of the Lord. I want to be lifted up. I'm so confident in my shepherd. He'll get me there. (laughs) He'll get me there. Psalm 122. I was glad. I said that when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. We should be rejoicing in this greatness He's given us the picture of his shepherd. I'm not letting anything, anything whatsoever, anything, anything deter me from worshiping that shepherd. He's been too good. He's been too kind. And we should be the same way. That shepherd has come in human flesh. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given his life for us. He's lived out what we could not live out and he's died in our place and he's arisen from the ghetto, rose from the dead the third day and he's ascended up in the glory. He's seated at the father's right hand and that shepherd is coming back for the sheep so that we would be with him in glory. But until then, guess what he wants? The sheep, regardless of mountaintop or valley, come to the house of the Lord and inquire in his temple, worshiping the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That's what he wants. And what he wants, we should give him. <laughs> we should give him. We should give him what he wants. Think about it for a moment. Why would we not? Why would we not? He's given us so much. Why would we not give him what he deserves? We should give him what he deserves, that worship, because he did not give us what we deserve. Oh, the shepherd, the shepherd has not only preserved us, young people, children, he's preserved us. You're breathing right now because of this great shepherd. If he takes that breath away, you're gone. You ought to give thanks. You ought to give thanks to that great one. You ought to come here and open your mouth and sing to that great one. Because he didn't give you what you deserve. As much as you understand, you ought to come and give thanks to that shepherd. Praise that shepherd. Adore that shepherd. You should say, I want that shepherd and love that shepherd because he's worthy of that and more. He's worthy. We ought to find our identity, our identity in the shepherd himself. We are his sheep. We need to find our security in God himself, and when we do that, we won't fear. That's where we need to find our security. I can say this, and I can say this of me, and I'll say it of you. Our identity is in him, as I said. I'm his creature by creation. I'm spiritually alive by regeneration. I'm a Christian by identification. I'm innocent by justification. I'm righteous by sanctification. 
I'm a Baptist by association, and I'm a child of God by adoption. We can shout hallelujah all over again. We ought to find our identity in the shepherd. That's where we take all of our matters. The Lord has already said, and I've alluded to it somewhat, I will set up one shepherd over them. Just one. And he shall feed them, even my servant David. David is dead and gone, but this is David number two. And he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. I'm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's that great shepherd of the sheep. God has given us a glorious shepherd who is gathering up the sheep to himself. Why should you be left out? Why should you be left out? He's bringing sheep to himself. He's calling. He's calling the sheep. Why should you be left out? Why? 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 Why would you be left out when thousands are going in? Why would you be left out? Why would you commit suicide like that? The glorious shepherd, the tender shepherd, the lovely shepherd who wants and desires and does care for the sheep. Why would you be left out? Why? Why don't you see, if you don't see, any beauty in that shepherd? Why? This shepherd should come back one day and he's going to gather before him all nations He's going to put the goats on his left hand and the sheep on the right. That's going to be, that's going to be a remarkable day. He's going to speak to both groups. What group will you be in? There's a sheep group and there's a goats group. He's going to say, come, ye blessed, to the sheep. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Then he's going to say to the goats, depart, ye curse. Those words will never be changed. Eternity will be set. All destinations will be fixed. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. The shepherd welcomes. He said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Listen, and I will give you rest. What the psalmist said, he gives me rest. Oh, we want you to know that rest. Your life will never be the same. I guarantee you, you'll never regret it. That shepherd not only will guide you in this life, that shepherd will lead you all the way to glory. He will one day give you a new body that cannot die, filled with a refreshed and revived soul that cannot sin. You will behold him throughout all of glory, looking upon the one who loved you and gave himself for you and poured out his blood for you. And you will be able to follow that shepherd wherever he goes. And you will dwell with him forever. And he will love you forever. Do you want that shepherd? He's the best shepherd you can have. God will not give another shepherd. Oh, please, please. Lay hold of that shepherd before it's too late. This is not fiction. He is faithful, and the psalmist declares him to be so. He is trustworthy, and the psalmist declares him to be so. He is reliable, and the psalmist declares him to be so. If you don't have this shepherd, who or whom will you have? Who's going to stand up against your enemies? And you have enemies. Who's going to do it? Who's going to defend you? Who's going to defend you on the day of judgment? Who's going to do it if you don't have the shepherd? You would sit like that man. Matthew chapter 22. When the king said, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he stood speechless. He will be speechless before the shepherd when he speaks to you. And you don't want to hear those words, cast them in the outer darkness. You don't want to hear those words, bind them hand and feet and cast them in the outer darkness. They'd be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You don't want to hear that. You don't want to. I don't want you to hear that. 
The shepherd is filled with love. His heart is large. That's why he came. He came to gather that which is lost. Oh, come, 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 come to the shepherd. You will be completely satisfied. May the Lord help us and strengthen us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for all things you give us. Lord, we thank you for this great shepherd of the sheep. Oh, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the mountaintops. Oh, we thank you for the valleys. We would not have known your closeness, your nearness, your comforting grace without the valley. Thank you, oh, our Father, for not telling us the results so that we can trust you all the way to the end. We bless your name. Thank you for not giving to us what we deserve. But, Lord, we do thank you for giving to us what we didn't deserve. Thank you for keeping back hell and giving us heaven. Oh, God, we want all to know that. We want all to taste and see that the Lord is gracious. Would you do that great work? Give him, give them holy, <coughs> holy taste buds for the great king. Be gracious to us now. Ask your blessings upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand. <clears throat> Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God be with you till we meet again.